The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Well, welcome to uh, Mars Hill. I'm Kyle, one of the teaching pastors here. If you're new, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, We are in the midst of our mini-series for the summer on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to God's glory alone. These are the basics of the gospel itself and the rallying cry around which the Reformers preached to return us to this core elementary, beautiful uh, truth that is the gospel. And so today we're going to be looking at the, the, the one-third of this series, sola fide, being faith alone. And I want to look at two passages in particular, Galatians 2, 15 through 16 and verse 21, but really we're going to concentrate on uh, Galatians 16 and 21. And uh, Hebrews 11, verse 1. So if you have your copy of Scripture, you can open up to Galatians 2 and then Hebrews 11 and and keep a thumb in in either one of those. And while you're turning there, let's just remind ourselves of where we've been so far. This first sola that we looked at was sola scriptura. We asked the question, how do we come to know God? And some of the things we talked about was, well, there's really only two avenues. One, general revelation through things God created, so we know He is creator. And there's special revelations, uh, the Word of God, the only inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, so we know that God is Redeemer. And really, the fact that God has inspired His Word led us to revise that question, how do we know God, to how do we know that we are known by God? That's the bigger question to be asked. And the inspired Word of God tells us that. One of the ways it tells us that is by showing us and demonstrating to us God's grace throughout redemptive history. If sola scriptura, scripture alone, tells us that we are known by God, then sola gratia, grace alone, tells us how we are known by God. That despite us being pervasively corrupted in sin, despite us having every aspect of the human being and experience corrupted in body, mind, and soul, touched and affected somehow by sin, God, in His love, chose to save us anyway, and He does so through an unconditional covenant with us, that there's no regard to status or to works. God just chooses to redeem us and to bring us into His family. He does this by grace alone. He shows us grace upon grace, a saving grace, more than the grace He gives us throughout all of our lives, a special grace that redeems us and it sanctifies us and it perseveres us to the end so that we are kept by God's grace alone in sanctifying preservation. If I had to distill the doctrines of grace in one acronym, it would be those four things, pervasively corrupt, unconditional covenant, grace upon grace, and sanctifying preservation. Would you look at that? It spells pugs. I would have never in a thousand years have seen that coming. So people ask me, do you like tulips? Like, no, but I'm really into pugs, you see. Pervasively corrupt, unconditional covenant, grace upon grace, sanctifying preservation. This is essentially sola gratia. Now, if sola scriptura establishes we're known by God, and sola gratia tells us how we are known by God, then this third doctrine we're looking at, sola fide, faith alone, tells us how we know these things are true and how God's grace comes to be effective and initiated in us, how it comes to save us. 
So if God is the active agent in our salvation, as we saw last week, that it is by God's grace alone, we have to ask two questions. How is it that that active agent saves us? And once we know that, are there any pitfalls that could somehow undermine that action, that saving grace that God shows us? Before we move on, today we're, we're, I'm going to use a lot of terminology that can sound like Christianese, that can sound like I'm just saying some words to make myself sound smarter than I really am, and that, that is not true. What I want to do is I want us to, to remember three terms because they're going to be very important to us today. The first term is righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? What I want us to understand in here in the term righteous is that it is perfect, flawless, rightness. It's the perfect, flawless, rightness of something or someone that's justified by their actions and behavior. So no matter what they do, what they think, they are always right, right? That's righteous. Righteousness is the quality of being righteous. So if you are righteous, you have righteousness. In other words, you are perfectly right and just by your actions and behaviors. And justify is to be shown or to be proven to be righteous. In other words, the actions and behaviors that you display justify, they prove, they demonstrate, they point to the fact that you are always right in all of your actions and behavior. Righteous, righteousness, and justify. Those are going to be very important terms for us today. So maybe take a picture with your smartphone if you want to have it up, or if you, if you wrote it down really quickly, I think the app has these slides on it too. That'll help us uh, through the rest of the sermon. So let's look at this first question with those terms in mind. How does saving grace affect us? There's this desire that is universal, I think, throughout humanity that uh, we do want saving. We know that there's something wrong with the world, and if we're honest with ourselves, we know that there's something wrong with us. We don't quite know what it is, is humanity, but we know that it's not the way it could be, that it's not perfect, that there's some kind of ideal, utopia, that we could be striving for, and we're not there. It's deep within us we know there's something wrong. So we seek to overcome that wrong with the right. We seek some form of righteousness, and we seek to justify ourselves in whatever idea of righteousness we have by our actions. I think this is why political issues are so hot today, because people have latched on to politics as varying definitions of righteousness. So to be righteous means you hold to some kind of ideology along the political spectrum. And to be justified in your righteousness, you have to demonstrate and behave exactly according to the magisterium and authorities attached to that ideology. We're trying to justify ourselves we're trying to be righteous. We want to be on the right side of history. But there's a problem with this. Without realizing it, all of those standards of righteousness that we are seeking after are far below what the actual standard of righteousness 
is, what it actually means to be righteous. And the standard of righteousness is God's holiness. Not what politics say, what culture says, what society says, not what philosophies say, not what side of history says. God's holiness is the standard of righteousness. He is seated on the throne and for eternity has had this song sung over him, holy, 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 by terribly awesome beasts called seraphim. It's the only thing God has called thricefold in Scripture, in Isaiah and Revelation, holy, holy, holy. That God is holy means that he is different and he is other than us. In his moral character, he is perfect in all of his goodness. In his truth-telling, he cannot lie. Everything he says is true. In his righteousness, he has demonstrated and is justified by his unwavering commitment to what is right in word and deed and action. It's not as though God could sin but chooses not to because he's a really good being. God cannot sin. He can't do it. That old adage, is there something God can't do? Yes, he can't sin. He cannot, as Paul says, deny himself. And himself is holy, truthful, good, perfect in all of his ways. This holiness radiates from him, and it pierces anything that stands in its presence. He is like radioactive with righteousness. And if anything unrighteous stands before him, it becomes destroyed, faces death. This is what we would call God's wrath. See, that's the problem. If God is holy, then what are we? Not that. We are unholy. In a pervasively corrupt state, we cannot stand before God's holiness. We are sinners whose moral character is fallen. We are liars who conceal truth or outright lie. We are unrighteous. We're tainted by sin. And so we have this desperate need to be made right before God, not right before the world, not right before culture, not right before society, but right before the objective highest standard of righteousness, that being God. And this is something that haunted Martin Luther. Remember, Martin Luther was one of the guys that sparked the Reformation, drawing our attention back to Scripture. Martin Luther knew he... he his soul was in a pretty sad state, right? He understood, probably more than any of us in this room, uh, that he was a desperate sinner. And he knew God's judgment was coming, and he wanted a way out of it. And he believed that the only way to get away from or step outside of the judgment of God was to demonstrate to God how sorrowful he was and to essentially make it up to him. He thought that he could obey his way out of judgment, kind of like he racked up too much debt on a credit card. The bank came and says, we're going to collect. And Luther says, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to pay it back. I'm going to pay you the interest. And then I'm going to give you some more interest on top of that just to make sure we're good. Okay. And that's kind of how he envisioned his relationship with God. And that drove Luther to some interesting behavior. He left a career, or at least a track, a career of law to join a monastery and in the monastery, he would pray for hours at a time. He would fast for days at a time. He would confess every single sin he could think of to the priests, to the point where one priest told Martin Luther, like, go 
back to your room and don't see me again until you actually have something to confess, right? Like he just continually spilled his soul before these priests. But somehow, Luther didn't feel better. He didn't even feel neutral. He felt worse. It was almost as if the more he did, the worse he felt. And so he turned to extreme lengths for self-justification. He fasted nearly to starvation. He slept outside during northern German winters, which is pretty cold. He even resulted to self-flagellation. So he would beat himself with a whip on the back to identify with the suffering of Christ. Why? Because for Luther, Christ and the church justified him. God worked through Christ and works to justify him. And you, you can't really blame him. This was the theology of the day. And I think it's due in large part to the Latin version of the Bible that everybody used at this time. It was really the only one available that translated the word justification as justificare, which means I make righteous from two Latin words, justice, justice, which is justice and ficare means to make. So the idea of justification in medieval Roman Catholicism was God makes us righteous. Well, how does he make us righteous? Through Christ's works and the things that you do. Well, what do I know what to do? The church will prescribe that to you. So there's this blending of both Christ's work and our work. To make Christ's work effective, Luther believed he had to cooperate with what God was doing in him. But Luther had a big debt, so he had to cooperate a lot. Eventually, Luther got to the point where it just wasn't working for some reason. So he went on a pilgrimage. He thought that would make him feel better. And when he got to Rome, it got even worse. Because in Rome, where he was expecting to see this like beautiful Zion of Christian people pursuing godliness, he didn't see that at all. He went to a mass, and the priest rushed through it and got the people out the door so they could move on with their day. It wasn't very pastoral. He saw people in the hierarchy, the church hierarchy, um, getting drunk and going into brothels. And the thing that really like clicked in his mind was he went to the Scala Sancta, which are ostensibly the stairs that Jesus uh, ascended during his uh, crucifixion when he was on trial before Pontius Pilate. And people were on their hands and knees bleeding, like old elderly people, trying to get God's attention to love them and forgive them for their sins. And that kind of just made him snap. He became disenchanted with the whole system. And he sunk into depression because the church is corrupt and I can't do it, Martin Luther says. How am I supposed to be saved? I hate God, he said, when he came to that conclusion. See where those works drove him to. There's a really wise abbot of Luther's who, when Luther was at this very low point in his life, assigned him to teach the New Testament. Luther thought the guy was insane. But the abbot said, no, I think you really need to teach the New Testament to our new seminarians, and I want you to teach Romans. So Luther had to go back to the original language and teach Romans line by line, word by word. And during this time, very early on, he came across Romans 1.17, which reads, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, and this is quoting Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther thought that was interesting. What do you mean? the righteous shall live by faith. Don't righteous people live by righteousness? Isn't that why they're called righteous? Doesn't righteous person justify themselves by a moral work? Then he realized, no, 
Why? Because you can't. You're pervasively corrupt. How can you justify yourself with moral works if you can't do moral works? No matter how hard we try, we can never overcome the debt that we've racked up. In fact, the works that we're trying to rack up the debt is actually putting us into more debt, ironically. Our sin may seem small to us and something we can overcome and just pay back, but to a holy, infinite God, every sin against him echoes for eternity, and you are finite. It's when studying Romans that Luther realized that Paul was not saying that justification means I make righteous. That the Greek word for justification, dikaio, is I declare righteous. Not I make righteous, but I declare righteous. To render, exhibit, display, show, to be righteous in the same way that Abraham believed the Lord and he was made righteous? No. And he counted it to him, his faith, as righteousness. Justification does not transform us instantly into a righteous people. It's God's declaration that we have had a status change in our life. Maybe an analogy from marriage would work. When the officiant declares the man and the woman to be husband and wife, what changes about them? Do they all of a sudden miraculously become people that are filled with fidelity and love to one another? Or does their status change? You see, when the officiant declares that this man and woman are now husband and wife, it is their status, not their character, that changes. Hopefully their character will change, right? And it's a good marriage. But it's their status that change. That's the real change. For Luther, this made all the difference in the world because God does make us righteous, but that's where salvation ends, not where it begins. Where it begins is God declares us righteous. This is why Paul can say in Romans 5, 9, we have now been, past tense, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved, future tense, by him from the wrath of God. Not we are being justified now, not we will be justified later, we have been, past tense, justified. Our salvation is actually a past event presently occurring. God declares us righteous even though we are still sinners. We are simultaneously declared to be righteous and a sinner. This was one of Luther's biggest things to preach on and to write on, that we are simultaneously declared to be righteous and a sinner. But the objection comes, well, isn't that like legal fiction? If God really is so holy and he can't stand the presence of sin and it burns away in his wrath, how can God just magically wave a wand and declare us righteous when we aren't actually righteous? And the answer is, look back at Romans 5, 9 and read it again. Now, we have been justified by his blood. There's the answer. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, the blood of Christ, in other words, Christ's atoning death, is how we are sinners declared righteous. That in Christ, 
is our righteousness, not in ourselves, not in who we are and what we do, but in who Christ is and what he does. Ours is, as Luther said, an alien righteousness, right? Not the Storm Area 51 alien, with the little guys with the spaceship alien, but a foreign righteousness, a not of our own doing, not of our own self-righteousness. It's a righteousness we hold that's not ours. In fact, our righteousness doesn't exist. There's no such thing. It cannot exist. We're pervasively corrupt. It is the righteousness of Christ in which we are hidden. This is why over and over and over again, we read in the Old Testament, essentially an echo, an expansion on what the psalmist says in the third Psalm, verse eight, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his God, by his grace, freely gives righteousness to people, and we are passive recipients. He gives it to us in a fancy word called imputation. He imputes it. He gives us his own righteousness, as if all of the things Christ did and accomplished, I have now done and accomplished. It is Christ in me, and I in Christ. Salvation is the Lord's because salvation is the Lord. Salvation is the Lord's because salvation is the Lord. I would warn us to be very careful about theologians or influential people who agree with justification that it's a declaration, but they disagree that with justification, we have a righteousness given to us. Because man, this is the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel, it's a beautiful, precious truth. And just things I read, I see it melting away. I see it melting away in popular theological movements. It's just not right. Justification is a declaration that our righteousness of Christ has been given to us even though we did nothing for it. And as a result, foreign righteousness brings us into this whole new world of blessings, this whole new world of possibility, a whole new world of obedience. Gives us a whole new job to do. Let me give us an analogy. And Neil Ledbetter brought this up in uh, Pastors Community on Tuesday, and I like it. It's a good one. Uh, imagine you're going for a job interview, right? And I picked the most stock image possible, right? Because everybody's job interview experience is like that. When you apply for a job, what do employers want to see in their decision making? In other words, if the employer is the woman in focus, uh, what is she holding there in her hand? A resume, right? What is a resume? A resume is a list of your experiences, qualifications, accomplishments. It's what I've learned under education. It's what I've done under work history. It's what I've achieved under accomplishments. Usually three big categories, right? What if you were uh, going into a job interview for a job you didn't qualify for, like nuclear reactor inspector or something like that, right? And you hand over your, your resume and they look at it and they're like, okay, under education you put yes. And you're like, yeah. And they're like, okay. And uh, under work experience I say you put just the word computers. And, uh, and then under achievements, you once held your breath for three minutes straight. <laughs> like, okay, I'm sorry, you're not qualified for this job, right? Your resume is woefully insufficient for the job that's being asked for you to do. And with this job, all the benefits that come with it. 
Now imagine that before you entered the interview, the son of the CEO gives you his resume. And that this isn't for a job, it's for salvation. And his resume, the son's, is flawless. Under education, it says, all wisdom and knowledge ever. Like, oh, that's pretty impressive. Better than Harvard and Yale, I suppose. Under work experience, perfect righteousness and obedience never sinned once. Under achievements, a death that fulfilled the law and a resurrection to back it up. That's a pretty impressive resume, right? And he gives it to you, and he says, here, take it. And you use this as your resume. It's his work and his accomplishments that will get you the job. It's his work and his accomplishments that you will present to the employer. His resume is sufficient and excellent in all of its ways. It's his merit, his experiences that saves you. It is Christ's work that justifies you. So, as I'm fond of saying, we actually are saved by works. They're just not our own. It is a works-based salvation. It's just that all of the works come from Christ and none of them come from us. So how do we get that resume? How are the works of Christ transferred to us, imputed to us, even though we didn't do them? By faith alone, sola fide. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1, 1, the famous passage, the biblical definition of faith. Now, faith is assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. It's assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. Essentially, faith is assurance and conviction in invisible hope. What is our invisible hope? Well, if you read Hebrews, essentially, I think you can define it in three words, God's divine favor. The assurance and conviction we have in the invisible hope, our invisible hope is God's divine favor. That God is good, that he is faithful, and that he is able to make good promises to, and, and to see those promises through. That God is good, he's only good, he's not evil. That he's faithful, that he only promises good things. And he's able, that he has the power to see the things he promises all the way through and will not break on that promise. By faith, we have a divine favor from God through the work of Christ sealed to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In other words, if I had to define it, faith is our assurance and conviction that God is good, faithful, and able to keep his promises. That's what I think at the core of what the author of Hebrews means by things we cannot see, this divine blessing or hope. So our invisible hope isn't invisible because it's a feeling. It's not invisible because it's an emotion those two things that are subjective sitting deep down within us. Our invisible hope is invisible because it transcends our vision for goodness, faithfulness, and ability. We can't even fathom how good and faithful and able God is. It's seated at heights that we cannot comprehend. How do you quantify divine favor? How do you measure the work of Christ? How do you witness from beginning to end the ability of the Holy Spirit. 
So faith is objective, not subjective, but objective. It's found in God's person and his actions. Faith is assurance and conviction of God's divine favor. It's assurance and conviction that God is good and faithful and able to keep all of his promises, even if we can't see that that is what he is doing. In keeping with the past two sermons, we might say faith allows us to know that we are known by God. And it is faith alone that does this, faith apart from anything that we can do. And it's always been this way. Back to Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It was belief, faith, that God declared Abraham righteous. In Romans 4, 5, Paul tells us, to the one who does not work but believes, faith, in him, Christ, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just like it was for Abraham. It's never changed from Old to New Testament till now. In other words, the promises of God have been fulfilled in the personal work of Christ, and access to the blessings that come from that promise are only in Christ by faith alone. For, as Paul declares, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Why? So that the glory of the goodness and faithfulness and ability of God to save us is totally and unquestionably raised up to him being the only thing in the universe that can accomplish that. It's not we who save ourselves. God has not given us a guru with special instructions towards salvation. It's not some kind of combination of us and Jesus who saves. God has not merely made up the difference of our works with the works of his son. It is totally and completely without a single instance, solely the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves us. I love this line from Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, he said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Woof. But it's true. It's God's grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone that saves, so that he rightly receives all the glory for our salvation. So to answer our first question, how does this saving grace affect us? The answer, it affects us by faith alone. Do you believe that God is good and faithful and able to save? Do you believe that he does so through the person and work of his son and by the power of his spirit? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus is resurrected, that he holds all power and authority? Do you believe that he is your only hope for redemption? That's all it takes. Done. Sola fide. Well, I want to ask two more questions, though. Are there any pitfalls that undermine how God's grace saves us? Well, actually, one more question, I guess, but split up in two ways. When we look at faith alone, I think, I think there's two things we struggle with, right? The one thing we struggle with is faith alone, right? Do we really, can't we do something with it? And the other one is we struggle with faith itself. This worst, first one is, is really dangerous to slip into, and, and we see it in Galatians 2, 15 through 16 and 21. Uh, that, that it is by faith alone, not in addition to anything else. If you, if you have your Bible open up there and, and we'll read this. We ourselves are Jews, Paul says, by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
I do not nullify, this is verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, at this time, Jews believed that just by virtue of being Jewish, they were saved. They were in the Kemetic community with Israel. But they had to do something to maintain that salvation. They weren't working towards salvation, but they were working to maintain it. It was this covenant relationship that they had plus works that got them. And when Christians started to be converted out of, you know, this, this faulty view of how God has, how God saves people, uh, they, they kind of kept that works-ish part of it and, and didn't want to let go. It was really hard for them to let go. And so this is what Paul is getting at. So you've got, you've got to let that go because a person isn't justified according to the works of the law. So they're not justified by, for example, circumcision. They're not exampled by Torah memorization. They're not justified by going to synagogue every week. They're justified by faith in Christ because by works of the law, nobody can be justified. Why? James tells us, if you want to keep the law, that's fine, but you have to keep all the law all the time. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Law-keeping, trying to self-justify, is a all-or-nothing game, and we got nothing. But Christ has everything, and we get that everything by faith alone. It's impossible to be justified by works of the law. And this isn't just something that, you know, God's like, oh, I really wish you wouldn't do that. This is a terrible thing because adding our works to Christ's works, if it's faith plus works, it actually nullifies, Paul says, nullifies God's grace. It cancels out the effects because grace is a gift. You can't earn a gift. And if you try to earn a gift, essentially what you're doing is you, you're saying that Christ's works weren't enough. I've got to add my own. They weren't good enough. They were insufficient. He messed up here. Here, let me fix it. We declare Christ's death useless when we add works to our faith. Back to the resume example, if Christ hands you the resume in the waiting room, says use this resume, and you're like, oh, this is good. Well, except for this one thing, I'm going to erase love neighbor perfectly. I'm going to put my work in there. It's like Jesus would be like, what is that? Like, uh, I sometimes love my neighbor, but not really. Let's be honest. I hate the guy, right? And Jesus is like, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> that's why you need my resume. Your resume is awful. And if you add, you change one thing on his resume, it's taken back. And you're left going into the job interview with your own resume, which isn't going to go well. Paul says in Galatians 5, 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. It's not a minor offense to add to our faith. So we ought not ever mix faith and works. What is it that you believe will justify you if you do it and you do it well? I think one of the questions I ask myself, and it helps me find that, is this. What is something that if I stop doing, God won't love me anymore? It's a question I ask myself from time to time, just a heart check. What is it that I'm doing right now that if I stop doing, God wouldn't love me anymore? Because that's probably a work that I'm adding to my justification. The solution is not ceasing doing good works, right? 
Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we were created for good works. But there is a wrong reason for doing right things. And the wrong reason for doing right things is adding to Christ's work. See, the gospel invites us to believe before it commands us to behave. The gospel invites us to believe before it commands us to behave. And the moment we flip that backwards, which we're so prone to do, the gospel, which means good news, no longer is good news. It's bad news. And we end up in the situation that Martin Luther found himself in, consistently racking up debt, when all along, grace is holding Christ's perfect work and asking us, it's yours, just take it. Some of us struggle with that. We struggle to justify ourselves. But some of us struggle with the other part, right? Some of us struggle with faith itself. We struggle with faith alone. We're unsure that we even have the right faith. We have enough faith, right? And if I was to, to confess, this is what I struggle with more than the other thing. I, I, am, I am not prone to, to legalism. That's not something I, I struggle with. I struggle with this one. How can I have assurance that I'm saved? How can I have assurance that the faith I have is connecting me to this grace, right? Reread with me Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When I read that word assurance, every time I'm, I'm convicted, not because I forgot the definition of faith, but because this definition of faith exposes doubt in my heart. Because when I see assurance, there's a little voice inside of my head that goes, what assurance? <laughs> what do you mean, assurance? Do you ever feel like you don't have assurance of your faith? Like you can't be sure that your faith is real. You can't be sure that your faith is connecting you to God's grace. You look around you and you see people who, who have faith that seem really sure and really firm but your faith feels weak and flimsy. You struggle to believe that God is good and faithful and able. You believe that maybe he forgives your sins today, but what about those major failures you had in your past? Will he forgive me if I have a major failure in my future? You always feel like God's really far away, that it's your fault for not keeping up the end of the bargain because you just are struggling with belief, with trust, with faith. And if you're struggling with faith, and faith is connected to your justification, well, what does that say about your justification? And it's just this, this cycle of unassurance. Do you ever feel like that? Feel like it's okay. I mean, I do. You're not alone if you do. Every believer has been there. Where the very term believer, describing somebody who believes, makes it feel like a sham. We might say we believe, but we know in our hearts there's some unbelief chipping away at the foundation of our faith. John Calvin uh, said it like this, so deeply rooted in our hearts is unbelief, so prone are we to it, that while all confess with the lips that God is faithful, no man ever believes it without an arduous struggle. But we're not meant to have that arduous struggle because we're not meant to have a flimsy faith that's prone to collapse. Faith is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tells us. 
And God doesn't give flimsy gifts. You see, this question, do you have assurance, gets at the heart of the matter. What is your definition of faith? That's where the real problem is. Is it what we've already said, assurance and confidence in God's divine favor, things that we hope for, as Hebrews 11 one says? Or is your definition of faith something like this, a feeling of power that fastens me to salvation? A feeling of power that fastens me to salvation. If your definition of faith is that second one, that's a bad definition of faith. And I'll tell you, it's the kind of faith the enemy wants you to have. That faith is some kind of power within you that you have to muster to attach yourself to salvation. We typically think of faith in terms of a quantity, don't we? It's a quantity of power that we produce within ourselves. I'll tell you how this manifests in our speech. You don't have enough faith. You just need to have more faith, quantity. It's as if faith is like gasoline. You can only fill up once between now and Atlanta, and you're starting your journey on a quarter tank. Your trip to justification needs a full tank of faith. If not, you're going to be stranded and come up short. You don't have enough faith. You just need to have more faith. The problem with that definition is that faith is not a quantity so much as it is a quality. That faith is not like gasoline. Faith is like a seed. It's not the amount of faith that matters. It's the presence of faith that matters. See, seeds are tiny, but they grow into really, really big things. And in God's economy, the tiniest seed can move the biggest thing on earth. As Jesus said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, mountains will move. Why? Because you're not the source of power. Christ is. And your faith acts as a conduit through which the power of Christ flows. That thing, that object that justifies you is in Christ and Christ alone. We'll speak more about that next week. We struggle with faith when we make it about us, but we thrive in faith when we make it about God and his promises. Calvin said this, the promise that God makes us, the promise is the only thing on which the heart of man can recline but it is impossible to receive assurance if we are the ones on which we are reclining. That's why your faith feels flimsy and collapses, because you're reclining on yourself and not on the promises of God. We can either try to lean on ourselves and just have more faith because we don't have enough faith, or we can lean on the promises of God to lean on God's goodness and his faithfulness and his ability. The former is subjective and prone to failure. The latter is objective, and it's impossible to fail forever. Leaning and trusting on divine favor never changes because God never changes. And his never-changing divine favor has declared that you have been justified by his son. Let me give you another illustration. If you weren't here last week, my wife and I got to make the awesome announcement that we were finally placed with adoption. And man, adoption is like chock full of spiritual lessons. It's awesome. 
Here's another one I've, I've learned from adoption. I asked myself this question this week. How will my daughter know she is adopted? How will she know beyond a shadow of a doubt she's adopted? Is it a feeling she has? Is it some kind of power within her that she has to muster? No. The way she will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that she's adopted is by a legal declaration. One day, she will be able to go through our files, with permission, of course, go through our files, rifle through our documents at home, and find the court order that declared her publicly and legally adopted. It's not contingent on how much faith she has. She doesn't need to have enough faith to empower that, that, that declaration from the judge. It just is a declaration. How do you know that you are adopted? A legal declaration, justification by God. The cosmic declaration of your adoption into God's family is the bloody crucifixion and glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. His words, it is finished, is the signature of the judge on your adoption paperwork. And the empty tomb is the embossed seal of authority from the courthouse on your adoption paperwork. You don't need to have enough faith to empower that declaration. That declaration is empowered by itself. You see, our assurance of faith is not taken away from us or given to us, I should say, by some moment in our life. Our assurance of faith is in the three worst but best years of human history. When people ask me, Kyle, how do you, why do you believe you're saved? So my answer isn't because I was baptized. It isn't even because I surrendered to Christ. It isn't I prayed the sinner's prayer. It isn't I was catechized. It, it isn't because I, 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 I. Right? My answer is because Christ rose from death and his tomb is empty. That is the core of my assurance of faith. And from that core I build out. Because the tomb is empty, I believe Jesus and everything that he said is true. And because everything that Jesus said is true and I believe it, I recognize my standing before God. And because I recognize my standing before God, I repent. And because I repent, I have faith in him, blah, 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 right? And then it gets all the way back to, and so that's why I think I'm forgiven. But then the conversation comes up like, but how do you know you're forgiven? Back to square one, empty tomb. Empty tomb. You don't need to have more faith. You just need to have right faith. Faith is not a feeling of power within you. It's not something you muster up inside yourself. It's not something you just blindly push through until you feel like you have enough. Faith is taking hold of the cross. Faith is marveling at the empty tomb. And faith is looking with joy at the prospect of Christ's return. Faith doesn't hide doubt. Faith takes the doubt you have to the very source of faith itself, lays it before his feet, and says, as we read the man's confession in Mark 9, 24, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith alone is what saves us. And the object of our faith desires us. He pursues us. He rescues us. He redeems us. Lean into him and the promises that he has made you. Don't lean into yourself, but into him. And I promise 
faith that may seem minuscule to you, and even in comparison to the people around you, will move mountains of obstacles and sin and doubt and worry and anxiety. It is by faith alone, through God's grace, we are saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this free gift of the righteousness of your Son declared over to us, imputed to us by faith alone. We confess that we struggle with this, that we are prone to add to Christ's finished work, but God forbid we do it. Holy Spirit, convict us, lest we be cut off, as Paul says. And Father, we also admit and confess that we are prone to thinking that faith is something of our own when it is a gift that you have given us. Father, let us grow by the power of your Holy Spirit in faith, faith that is in the object of your Son in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Let us never lean in ourselves, but let us lean wholly on your cross and let us rejoice in your empty tomb and let us look forward to your return when you will make all things new and our faith will finally be completely realized and we will no longer have assurance and convictions of things unseen, but we will have complete love of things seen. Father, we thank you so much that your gift is made available to us by faith alone. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen. Well, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you as you go this week.